1: Welcome to episode 226 with my return guest therapist Katie Morton. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office, I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. You can uh, browse the forum. You can uh, read blogs by me and by other people. You can uh, fill out surveys that help me get to know you, the listener, better. might get read on the show. Uh, You can also browse and see how other people filled out surveys. And you can go there and uh, financially support the show as well. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of... Struggle in the sentences. This one is filled out by a woman who calls herself Vale Halsey and about her depression. She writes, I feel hopeful and open in the summer, but like my life ends when it hits fall and winter, like everything stops. Boy, do I know that feeling. Um, something you might want to check out is um, doing one of those uh, lights that they use for what's called seasonal affective disorder. And um, that can often help. This is filled out by Siggy and about her PTSD. She writes, fight or flight all the time, constantly fighting off the adrenaline to act normal. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself a girl. She's a teenager who uh, calls herself another chance about her depression, lost in the woods with no chances of ever being found. Snapshot from her life at the age of eight, begging my father to not make me go back to my cousin because she molests us after we were forced to go over every weekend. If only he had cared. And then this one, this touches my, my heart. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? She writes, no, my counselor suggested this and I love it. Can I tell you how happy that makes me when I hear Uh, mental health professionals um, recommend this show. That is just the ultimate compliment to me. Uh, This is filled out by another teenage girl uh, who calls herself Sister Kate and uh, about her codependency. codependency. She writes, "Uh, I love her and she's never touched me, but my mother talks to me like I'm her husband and it makes me feel disgusting. Uh, This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Goby Dillis, and he writes about his depression, as though someone injected Novocaine in my soul, and happiness keeps drooling out. That might go. That might go in the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame one. That's pretty damn good. Um. This is filled out by Cupcake Rex, and about her PTSD, she writes, emotionally anorexic. Know how your stomach shrinks if you don't eat for a few days and the thought of putting food in your mouth is disgusting? It's like that, but with feelings. I'm both starved to feel them and repulsed by them. James writes about his high-functioning autism. It's like there's a whole secret world that I only get a glimpse into on the off chance anyone bothers to tell the truth of their feelings and motivations. And uh, a snapshot from his life, he writes, leaving any interaction worried that I am unwanted and have just spent that time inflicting myself upon them. A guy who calls himself Rad uh, writes about his OCD. My entire apartment is white. No one is allowed in except myself. Can't bear the thought of someone coming over and sitting on the couch that I'd spent hours cleaning and making it look good enough to my standards. Snapshot from his life, going from walking around extremely happy and, quote, high on life in the streets of Toronto to a dive bar, getting shit-faced drunk, thinking about every bad decision I've made. You know, my first thought, and I always say at any times there's alcoholism and drug addiction, um, because he also uh, mentions that he's uh, an alcoholic Um, in another part of the survey. I, I, I always say... Until you address that, I don't believe there's any hope of getting to any of the underlying issues like OCD or anxiety or any of that other stuff until the addictions get uh, get addressed. And then finally, this is uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Stone Roberts. And uh, about his depression, he writes, am I depressed or am I just bored with everything I have at my disposal? Oh my God, do I relate to that. Snapshot from his life. I just chatted up someone in an online game. Nothing revealing or illegal. It's just I realized very early on that I was doing it as though I were a female. And the confusing part is, do I want to be female? Or am I just frustrated with not getting hard around girls? And my thought is, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it. it will. You may be in the middle of an ongoing process of, moving one direction or another and what the label on that is doesn't fucking matter. What matters is that you love yourself and you accept yourself how you are and people that don't accept you for who you are, fuck them. And speaking of uh, going and fucking oneself, he asks, uh in your mind, when you tell people to go fuck themselves, how should they actually do it? And I'm a little embarrassed I've never covered this before, but, um, in my mind, it's always classy. Uh, I think you should dress up like it's the 1890s. If you're a guy, you wear one of those tight-fitting suits with a gigantically high collar, you know, a little derby, and uh, you want to ride out on one of those bikes with the gigantic front wheel. You want to find someplace nice and quiet where people aren't around. Ease those pants off, cover yourself with a parasol, get down to business when you're about to hit the jackpot. You look at the heavens and say, good day, sir. My God. Somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying.
0: I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's what I, I call the suicide hotline. A good Crazilless experience is if you
1: are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so, That is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and
0: sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return.
1: Yeah, I just, I surrender.
0: And I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing.
1: I'm here with uh, Katie Morton. She's a return guest, and uh, the the last time you were on, you, the, I had the listeners pose some questions to you through Twitter and through Facebook, and uh, I got a lot out of it. They got a lot out of it, and I'm glad uh, you've agreed to come back. Of I'm, course. I'm glad we didn't sour you on the Mental Illness <laughs> Happy Hour. Uh, so I. I put out a tweet and a Facebook post asking people to pose some questions for you, and I'm just pulling it up right now. And uh, the first one I want to read is, um, this is from a woman who uh, private messaged me on Facebook and said, not able to type on Facebook in fear of people seeing the real me, not the facade. How do you overcome sexual abuse by a brother and how do you ever gain confidence in your life When your whole life, ages 1 to 45, your father never showed love or affection and told you you were never good enough? Well, well, I think that's two separate things.
0: Yeah, two separate questions posed, I guess. Um, The first being how do you overcome sexual abuse from your brother? And this book, uh, The Courage to Heal Workbook, amazing. Hands down, the best thing I've ever worked with for people. Who wrote it? Oh, it's the only one out
1: there. Okay, it's yellow the courage to heal. with
0: black writing. The okay. cur- and if you go onto my website, katimorton.com, I have a widget where I add everything I've mentioned, and it's in the bottom widget, okay. so you can find it. Um, it's a process, uh, overcoming sexual abuse. And the thing that I think is the hardest for people to grasp is the fact that you actually have to talk through it yep. in detail with a professional and be reminded that you're okay, that you're safe, that that's not happening to you anymore, and... It's a slow healing process. And that workbook, I always use it with, I mean, that's what it's created for. And it's Mm -hmm. created by a woman who is now a therapist, but was sexually abused herself. Um, And talks about everything from like the shame and guilt that you may feel and the fact Mm -hmm. that you don't want to say anything right away, all the way through to how do you have sex with your husband Mm -hmm. or wife or whoever in a loving, intimate way and not let that get in the way of that. Yeah. And so it's a really powerful workbook, um, but that the best way is to see a professional and talk it out, and, as and, icky as it sounds.
1: Yeah, and the other things that I would add is be patient with yourself during the process. The process of healing is not linear at all. It's mm-hmm. a lot of two steps forward, one step back. Be kind to yourself. It's a perfect time for you to be your own best friend, and especially for that hurt Little child that is still inside of you that was innocent and was taken advantage of, and then the last thing I would add is that relationship with a good empathetic therapist can become the template for you to learn how to trust other people because um, wouldn't wouldn't you say that the shattering of trust in the family unit Mm -hmm. is like a, a a wound that is pretty it takes some effort to heal.
0: Yeah, it leaves a void definitely. Um the fact that your place you're supposed to grow up and supposed to be safe and you're supposed to feel secure and comfortable hmm. and the fact that that's taken from you leaves a gaping hole that takes time to fill and knowing cuz I have a lot of clients who struggle to realize they can't go back and they can't fix it. But they can heal in their own way now and create their own family. Mm-hmm. The that's that's the hardest thing people to accept, but the most powerful when you're able to that you create your own family now. Yeah, it's you know.
1: And, and the other thing I would add too is if you're having uh, sexual fantasies that are making you really uncomfortable, just know that that's really common, and a lot of times that's your brain's way of trying to go back and fix it. It's a way of trying to go back. Just the act of fantasizing is a way of going back and trying to take control. So don't judge yourself for the the weird movies that your head may be playing.
0: Mm-hmm. It's your brain's way of trying to process a really sick and twisted act and try to make it okay so yeah. that you're okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the second one, mm-hmm. um, how do you ever have confidence in your life uh, when your father never showed you love or affection and told you you weren't good enough? Well, I i would say the first thing is to tell him to fuck off. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs>
0: And I think self-confidence is something a lot of people struggle with, with, with or without the love and affection of family members. And a couple little tips, something that I always have my clients do. Set small goals for yourself that are achievable and reward yourself accordingly. Get excited about the fact that you were on time for work, that you got up and showered. I don't know what level you are, you know.
1: Walk around the block.
0: Exactly. You you know, anything that you can set small goals for yourself that you can achieve At the end of every couple days, reward yourself, get excited, you know, Um, because that helps you feel more empowered, more able versus that nasty voice in your head that's like, I can't, I shouldn't, I'm so stupid, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, you know, the mean voice in our head is so genius, it will never run out of things to beat ourselves (laughs) up about, and we need a defense team.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: To say, no, I did this today. And especially I think um doing nice things for other people, not like huge going out of mm-hmm. your way, you know, devoting your life to the Peace Corps. <laughs> you know, but volunteering. Volunteering great. holding a door open for somebody. Yeah. Complimenting a, a, somebody in front of you in, in line mm-hmm. on their coat.
0: Totally. Little
1: things like that.
0: Even just going around, I always tell people that we can decide each morning what we want our day to be like. And if we go out thinking it's going to be great and I'm going to be friendly to people, like 90% of the time you get that friendliness back and that can help you feel better, brighten your day. Little things like that. Um, And so other than those two things, which that's another one on my list is volunteering and helping others, is um, weeding out toxic people. So, yes. if you have someone who's a total vampire in your life, the emotional vampire they call them a lot of my viewers yeah. that's what they've coined it um where you feel exhausted, just being around them because it's all about them and it's all about what they want, and it's all about their troubles and da, 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 and you and find yourself
1: just, having having to hide your joy from them
0: yes then those people just start distancing yourself. It's not like you have to have a conversation where you're like, you're a jerk and an asshole. And I don't want to hang out with you anymore, but you can just say like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm busy. Um, You know, catch you next time and just keep yeah. catching them. Don't next really time. have time to
1: chat uh, exactly. right now. Um, yeah.
0: But it's okay to hang up the phone or you know what? To it's not okay answer not it. to answer. We're yeah. so available now. It's like, don't respond to a text. Don't answer. You don't have to. I know we feel like we do, but the sooner those people are out of your lives, the more confident you'll feel better you'll feel and it does
1: not make you a bad person it makes you a healthy person there's the good kind of selfish and then there's the bad kind of selfish
0: yeah and this is self-care
1: yeah um next question from somebody is it typical for your therapist to forget things mine gave me social homework but never followed up
0: i saw that one Uh, yes we're human um That's something I don't forget because I take notes on homework specifically, because if I take the time honestly to put it together and to tell it to you, then I'm going to check up on it because I think it's important for part of your treatment. But we're human, too. If we forget to write something down because maybe we ran over and our next client was there and so we only had five minutes and so we're jotting things down and they forget, it's okay to bring it up that we're, you know, yeah. we all we all suffer from the human condition and we might mess up from time to time but if you put in the time to do the homework and you thought it was helpful bring it up
1: absolutely um and i would say this uh, for instance i had a therapist who was consistently would forget everything that that we had done and she was very scattered and she would bring her dog into the office during appointments and it was you know making noise and I let her go I said you know this I I just don't think it's a good fit anymore and I and I need to move on
0: yeah and and it's your right I mean I always tell people that if it's like, my viewers know, it's all about the relationship. You have to like your therapist. You have to feel like they hear you. You have to feel like you're important. And if they're not paying attention, if they forget the things that you've talked about and you don't feel like you're moving forward, I mean, you should feel held. You should feel mm. heard and you should feel understood. And I think if you don't, it's nothing personal. Yeah. It you, that's, It's part of your treatment. You're taking care of yourself and you're putting your time and money and energy into it. You should be getting yeah. something out of it,
1: and they may forget a detail here or there. Mm-hmm. But we're we're talking, you know, how often does it happen, and how important are the things that they're yeah. they're forgetting? Exactly. Um, this person asks any info info on thyroid problems being linked to mental health issues.
0: Not to call out my husband, but his family has a lot of different um, issues with thyroid, and we get his checked all the time because it can definitely affect your mood. Um, we actually looked into it. It's not something that I specialize in. It's more like a personal thing that we ended up looking up. Um, depression is really, really common. Um, that, would
1: that be for underactive or overactive or both?
0: I believe underactive.
1: That's what I, I think that's what I remember hearing.
0: Yeah, Um. and I'd have to... I'm pulling from my mental Rolodex of what we looked up because his family had underactive and so they his uncle had had really bad depression. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't characteristic of him and his um, girlfriend was like, what is wrong with you? I don't understand. And it went on for like six to eight months of him just like...
1: Sluggish. Yeah. Sleeping all the time. And even
0: body aches. It's like the same way that we may feel really deeply depressed, like mm-hmm. can't get out of bed. My body aches. I'm so, he was really irritable. Um, and it took him a while to even get to the doctor because... You know, some people don't want to talk about their depression because they're embarrassed and they think it's not as common as it
1: really is. Um, and it's but, hard to talk about when you're depressed because you don't feel like talking about it.
0: Exactly. You have no energy. Stigma to-
1: aside, even if you're somebody that, that isn't afraid of being stigmatized, it is just an effort to fucking talk about depression when you're yeah. feeling it.
0: Well, everything's a fucking effort. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. You know, if you're feeling depressed, like the one thing that comes out of you... I mean, you're, you're lethargic. I always tell mm-hmm. people, usually that's the most common. Um, so definitely... And if you find out you have a thyroid problem, get it checked every six months. Okay, That's that's what we learned.
1: And is there a pretty standard test that your just the general practitioner can do?
0: Yep. The, okay. They may send you for blood work if they don't do it in the office. But, I mean, I think we did it in the
1: office. Because mm. I just usually go to the circus and have that guy that guesses your weight <laughs> just to have him feel my neck.
0: Perfect. Yeah, you have to go to a little bit more professional. Not just too make, crazy, but...
1: Make sure he has a shirt. <laughs>
0: yes. All right.
1: Um... My life's never been better other than a spider bite on my butt. Been great for a while, so why am I still waiting for disaster? That sounds like anxiety to me, doesn't it?
0: A little bit. The waiting the waiting yeah. for disaster could be an anxiety component. Also, I find it fascinating that we sometimes miss feeling depressed. Or we miss, you know, whatever we were going through, like an eating disorder or self-harm. Mm-hmm. People miss having the urges to be do it or be in it. And sometimes, like I have a client right now um, who has had a really hard time admitting that she's recovering, that she's doing well. That seems really scary. And so if that is kind of what they're alluding to, mm-hmm. sometimes it's really scary because it's unpredictable because we've been sick for a long time and we know what that's like and we know what it's going to be. We can predict that it's going to turn into a shitstorm, but at mm-hmm. least we know that shit storm. But the recovery and the good things sometimes... I find my clients will say things like, but I just don't deserve it. And how can I be happy? That doesn't make any sense. And But that person was friendly and life is not easy for me like that. And all sorts of second guessing, like they don't deserve to feel better. But let me tell you, you do. Everybody does. And if you're feeling it, embrace it. Dance around your house with the music on if you want to and enjoy it because you've put in a lot of fucking hard work to get where you are. Yeah, so.
1: and, I, and I think the... the um the fear of the unknown, because with feeling a new thing, there's a lot of unknown in that.
0: Exactly, and unknown scary.
1: Really Every scary. Every time
0: we start something new, we're scared.
1: Yeah, and depressed lives often move in the direction of smaller and smaller, and more isolated, and less chances and less interaction. And uh, so, yeah, when you're when you're feeling good, it uh, that that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um. But that spider bite's going to kill you. Uh, how to deal with an emotionally abusive parent who toys with the emotions of my family and me?
0: It's funny. I just I did a video on this a while ago, like five signs of emotional abuse because it goes underreported. Doesn't leave bruises, doesn't break bones, but it it leaves these invisible wounds that are so painful. And my advice is always to distance as much as you can. I know sometimes we live with them and we're young. I have a lot of viewers that are young. Um, I always tell them, keep your earbuds in, stay in your room, do your work, go out with friends, keep yourself busy, put yourself around positive people. Don't spend that much time around that person. And if they start in the process, usually you'll recognize it. They're getting you back in that cycle where they usually put you down or they like to make you dependent on them either financially or there's a bunch of different ways you can be emotionally abused or they're neglectful. If you haven't given them enough attention, they won't give you attention. Um, really manipulative. And if you feel that cycle continuing, get out of there. I don't care if you have to call a friend to come get you. If you just have to, you know, go for a walk with the dog, uh, obviously make sure you're safe, but... Go in your room, put on something positive. It's their problem. It's not yours. And if you can see a therapist, if you can get some help, please, please do. The sooner we start talking about it, the sooner it starts to heal because emotional abuse is just as terrible as physical or sexual.
1: Absolutely. Uh, If they're a teenager, how would they go about getting therapy do they have to have their parents consent to go get therapy
0: you actually don't in the state of california at least and i believe it's the same in the states i know in the uk and other parts of the world it can be very different um however if you're over the age of 12 and you're able to mentally participate in therapy and if there's a copay or whatever cost that they that you've discussed with your therapist you're able to cover it without you know having to steal or anything mm-hmm. um then you're Fully able to participate, they just have to have a reason to not include your parents, and them being emotionally abusive is a pretty damn good one. So,
1: so. a kid could, thirteen year old kid could just pick up the phone, call a the therapist, and say, "My parents are emotionally abusive. Uh, I I would like to start therapy. I don't want them to know." Yep. Um, and you could go have an initial consultation. I would imagine most good therapists would say. come to me and i'll do this consultation for free totally for a 13 year old kid
0: oh definitely and i usually if it ends up not working out let's say it's not a good fit like we're talking about i don't charge people for the first session most of the time because especially with a kid you're feeling it out like that but yeah they will definitely see you and a lot of times you can go through your school counselor to get a good referral Um, and school counselors are available too and and they will see you
1: and will they uh Protect your privacy and not share it with your parents?
0: As long as you let them know what's going on. Okay. And that's the hard part. A lot of people don't want, well, I don't want that. I don't want to think my parents are bad people or, but you have to really consider yourself mm-hmm. in this scenario.
1: And I would imagine the one exception is, is if that child is being physically harmed, if they're crossing the threshold of what the state considers, mm-hmm. um, a lack of safety for that child, be it, um, extremely emotionally abusive, yes, sexually or physically, um, then there, that counselor or therapist is by law required to contact the
0: CPS CPS, Child Protective Services. Yeah, we're mandated. So if some the- of them are
1: for difficult and forgetful and they call UPS, which really doesn't solve much at all.
0: Unless <laughs> you to package big package.
1: <laughs> it, it was such a lame joke. It was so not worth slowing the podcast down for. I like to do that.
0: Just lightens the mood.
1: Um, you were going to add something to that.
0: Oh, I was going to say yes. Um, and neglect is on that list of reasons why we'd have to report. And so that the it's unfortunate, and it makes sense. Like I get both sides because I know a lot of clients I see now who are adults. They're you know forty years old, and they never reported it because they didn't want to get their parents in trouble. But then they're not then they're being abused, and. I would encourage any of the people listening, if you're worried about them getting in trouble, they should get in trouble. They're hurting you. And it's not about you ratting on them or, you know, getting them in trouble so much as you're getting the help you need.
1: You're claiming the right that is yours as a human being in a free country.
0: Yes. And, And if you're hurting and you feel the need to reach out, reach out.
1: Yeah. Um, the political side of me was like, Paul, is it really a free country? The corporations control the political process. <laughs> shut up, <laughs> shut up, political part of my brain. Um, let's see the next one. I know I am average and not, quote, perfect, so why do I still spiral out when someone points it out? Well, I would wonder, I would ask, how were they pointing it out? Yeah, if who- they're pointing it out in a way that's um, rude or demeaning, um, i would say fuck that person exactly <laughs> but if you're reading a ton into it what would you say to that person if, uh, if you're you know kind of blowing it up
0: yeah or if you're seeking out i find some people get online just to read negative content about themselves or you know a friend a an ex-friend and you read on their you know wall and you get yourself all worked up um it, i would talk to somebody because usually that It's kind of linked to OCD, not to, like, diagnose anybody because obviously talk to professional. But a lot of it has to do with our obsessions about ourselves and what people perceive. And we'll run through scenarios over and over and over in ways we could have made it better um, when we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect.
1: I think there's this sick desire in us, uh, especially those of us who were raised by narcissists and have um – or are addicts and have a black and white view of the world Mm -hmm. is we seek out the negative sometimes, I think, because we just want an answer. Am I good or am I bad? And we're willing to hear either one just because we have this crazy idea that some answer is going to allow our mind to relax. And it's one of the worst ways that we torture ourselves. Yeah,
0: black and white thinking is, is definitely a horrible, horrible thing to get into, but it's a pattern. It's hard to get out. You know, mm-hmm. because you're so used to things in life being right or wrong, good or bad, mm-hmm. and feeling that you are that way. A lot of um, children who grow up with borderline personality parents, mm-hmm. a mother or a father, have a lot of difficulty with that. And life is gray. It's all in between. It's all
1: gray. <laughs> uh, let's see the next one. How about the effects of emotional neglect and loneliness as a child? Um I'm not really sure what they – I guess they just want to know what are the effects of emotional neglect and loneliness as a child.
0: Um, It depends on the person. A lot of things depend on the person. Um, One of the things that can happen is that we really struggle to connect with people in general later in life, and it can be really hard for us to form healthy relationships. Um, We can be very clingy Mm -hmm. and struggle when people – may not be able to hang out or a boyfriend or girlfriend says they're not available tonight. That can be like a wound. Um,
1: Bring back all those feelings of abandonment as a kid.
0: Exactly. And the, there are a couple ways to work through it, obviously with a therapist um, and talking it out and being honest about the fact that you were neglected is a big one. A lot of people don't like to admit that there's a, you know, a mommy or daddy shaped hole that wasn't filled in the way that they needed. Um, But, There's a great book called The Emotionally Absent Mother, which I wish it had a better name because it just (laughs) sounds like, uh, I don't know, but it really helps you like re-mother if it was the mother who was neglectful. Mm -hmm. It really helps you find those mothering words that maybe you were seeking, like you're okay. You are enough. I'm glad you're here. Things that we don't realize we needed, but we need. Um, It really walks you through it. And it's a great book to work with your therapist on.
1: And I think the, the thing that is difficult about, for instance, childhood where there was neglect, where there was the absence of something, the things where the wound is because there was a void are often the most difficult to pinpoint and to talk about because you can't say, oh, you know, my dad, when he would. Pull into the driveway, I knew I was going to get beat it's like this th- these events that you can point to, but when it's an absence of th- of something throughout your life that's why I think depression is so difficult to d- to describe is because mm-hmm. you're not feeling vigor
0: yeah you're you're lacking versus having too much of something which is yeah. easy to be like, we well, should lessen that or you know yeah. we'll try to talk through why you feel you need to be punished because you were abused like it's it seems more. Simple to bring up and to talk about or to pinpoint what it is, like you said.
1: And never underestimate the damage by uh, indifference in parents. Yeah. Never underestimate that.
0: No, because just like I was saying, like the words you need to hear, just because they're not neglectful doesn't mean that you're still that you're not getting your that you're getting your needs met. It means you could still not be getting what
1: you need. Right. Because, you you know, to me, the thing that... uh, the, the kid who was molested, the kid who was beat, uh, the kid who was told that he was terrible, and the kid who whose parent wasn't interested in them, they're mm-hmm. all given the message, you don't matter.
0: Exactly. Like those mothering, th- those phrases are always really powerful for my clients who are dealing with that. They're like, I'm glad you're here. You're important. Those kinds of things that... They neither, whether neglectful or just disinterested, you didn't hear them either way. And we need to.
1: And by the way, when your therapist compliments you, says something nice, it's normal for your brain to say they're just saying that because I'm paying them. (laughs) But they really do mean it. Yeah, we don't
0: don't give lip service. It's not (laughs) it's not part of what we do.
1: Somebody is not going to be a therapist 40 hours a week listening to what they listen to for the money. They are doing it because they love it and they're empathetic people. And that's a really important thing to remember when you're, when you find a good therapist. Yeah. They're not bullshitting you. They're, they're, they're rooting for you. Yeah. Um, how to overcome anxiety related to seeing a therapist or attending a support group. What a great question. Um,
0: um, it's kind of a tricky one, I guess. It depends. There's to- two totally different setups. To see... In- let start with the first one. Right, yeah, the therapist. individual. Yeah. To see an individual therapist, to be honest, I find the hardest thing just making the phone call. It's mm-hmm. not actually going. It, it's admitting that you want to see someone and calling to set that appointment up. Um, and I can tell you with 100% certainty, it's never as scary as you think it's going to be. Never. Uh. All the time, they have a little waiting room. They'll put some papers out for you to fill out basic information. We're not asking for, you know, information from your childhood there. It's just, why are you here? Do you see a doctor? Um, How old are you? (laughs) Basic stuff. And then it's just like getting to know anybody. You're going to go in. They're there to listen to you. And it's never as scary as you think it's going to be.
1: And how about a sport group?
0: Support groups can be a little bit harder to go to.
1: Let's pause that for one second. Uh, I'd like to add for the senior therapist, the way I found my first therapist was I asked somebody who I knew was in therapy. And I said, can I have the number of your therapist? And they actually were filled, so they didn't have room for any more clients, but they recommended a therapist. And that is who I saw as my first therapist. And it was a really good experience.
0: And that's the best way is word of mouth or like I tell people, if you're suffering from a specific thing, if you, it's addiction, if it's eating disorders, if it's self-harm, there are treatment centers and they have huge referral lists and they vet those people. So if you're really concerned about the quality and knowing that they know how to work with what you're struggling with, you can call a treatment center and say, you know, is there a therapist in my zip code that you refer to? And they'll, they'll let you know they want to help just like anybody else. So that's a good place to start too.
1: Um, And as far as attending a support group.
0: That can be a little more daunting to show up because people worry who's going to be there. How many people they're going to think I'm weird. They're not going to understand. And it can be the most healing of all because it's been
1: my experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, even mine personally, too. I've gone to support groups and stuff um, when my dad passed away and hearing people talk about the biggest fears and worries and embarrassing, shameful things you think and having people say it can be so... So healing. Oh, yeah. Freeing. I'm, yes.
1: And and to have the room laugh together because they've experienced the same thing. The catharsis in support groups is... Oh, it's it, unmatched, it, really. It's unmatched.
0: And so I would just urge you to take that step to go if you have to psych yourself up, if you talk yourself through it. But the great thing is, is that when it's your first time, you don't have to talk. You don't. So don't prepare anything. Just go and listen.
1: Sit in the back. Yeah. Judge the fuck out of everybody. <laughs> exactly.
0: If it, you mm. know. It, you Ask know.
1: a trusted friend to come. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people in my support groups uh, have somebody there for support, and the you know the person will say because uh, if it's one of the ones where you go around and introduce yourself, uh-huh. um, the person will just say uh, you know I'm I'm new. This is my first time here, and then the person next to him will say I'm here for support, and then you know yeah, the next and person. And go right along yeah. because
0: yeah. it. it any way you can make it work for yourself. I find when we have anxiety about starting something new, it's kind of that unknown that we were talking about. But if you write down the reasons that you want to go, if you talk yourself through it, if you hear from your therapist, it's great. You talk to friends about it, get a supportive friend to go. Just start making the choices little by little. It may take you a couple of the meetings. You miss them because you can't get there. But if you keep working at it and get yourself there, you will not Regret it.
1: I would say, of the, let's say I've met 2,000 people in support groups, I would say maybe three times I've heard somebody say going to a support group was a waste of time. And the other 1,900.
0: <laughs> yeah. I've never heard anybody say and, that it wasn't. Any yeah. of my clients that I've referred. They always love it.
1: And you can even learn stuff at a support group meeting that is not great. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you may have to have a couple of months under your belt to recognize what's a good meeting from a bad meeting. But um, oftentimes, like if I'm in a meeting where there's no recovery and people are just kind of whining and Mm -hmm. people are not listening to the timer and going over, uh, I'll just say, well, this is a a chance for me to practice patience. I can't control what is happening right here. I could get up and leave if I wanted to, but I'm just going to see if I can sit here for another half hour and just accept that this is part of the universe.
0: Yeah, and it's part of the process, and everybody's in different stages, Yeah, but there's always little nuggets that you can gather from even the earliest person, the newest member, (laughs) um, because They always have a story to tell, and I always find you can find someone there you relate with in some fashion and glean some little gems.
1: Yes, stuff that you may keep for the rest of your life. That one day where you're like, uh, do I, you know, sit here and eat Cheetos and watch reruns or do i go to the support group and you go to that support group and somebody will say something that blows your fucking mind and changes your life
0: agreed yeah
1: hey it is time to give some love to our our sponsor our sponsor for this episode is next issue and i really love this product next next issue is like netflix for magazines only better because you have access to all the latest issues it's the new newsstand nextissue.com has all of the best, most up-to-date magazines on the newsstand, but they're delivered to your phone or tablet. Um, I, How do I even begin to describe my experience with this? Uh, the first magazine that I checked out is co- called Sportsnet, and I saw that they had an article on the 25 greatest hockey games ever played. Fantastic article in and of itself. They also had multimedia so you could press... On a picture, and all of a sudden, the game that that they were talking about, you got to see footage of the greatest line brawl or the greatest goal that was ever scored. Uh, next issue has over 150 magazines. you know it's less than the cost of two magazines at a newsstand. Plans start as low as 999 and one account can be shared with up to five people. So I can't say enough good things about it. I'm totally hooked. Uh, it's available on most popular devices, iPad and iPhones, Android tablets and smartphones. It's awesome. Go to nextissue.com slash mental and sign up today for your free trial. That's a $15 savings. It's a great deal, but it's only available if you go to nextissue.com slash mental. Sign up today. I ain't lying. Uh, This is a great question. What are the early warning signs of depression that we can look for, uh, especially in teenagers?
0: Ooh, teenagers, irritability. People always overlook that and think they're just acting out, which teenagers do act out. Let's not get it, you know, but if they're overly mm -hmm, excessively irritable, um, it'll usually come out. I always tell parents in two scenarios, not just at home, but at school or not just at school with friends or some crossover where you're finding it on their soccer coach is saying something or if you find it happening in more than one setting, it's time to you know start looking into it.
1: Um, I would probably also uh, add uh, loss of interest in activities that they normally like.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the most common with adults. Yeah. That's the first one to go is our, they call it anhedonia. It's yeah. like when you just don't like anything you used to.
1: Boy, boy, have I been there! And the other one would be if they are crying and saying, "I'm so depressed." That might yeah, be that might be a sign.
0: That could be a red flag. <laughs>
1: uh, do therapists talk to friends and family about their clients?
0: No. Okay. Uh,
1: <laughs> it's just the short
0: and sweet of it. Yeah.
1: Um. Although you 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 wouldn't ever specifically use a person's name but you may say well I'm I'm, you know I have a client who's has a fear of heights and yes
0: just like I did right. um, you know where I'll say things like I have a client that was struggling with that Yeah, I would say that um, because it gives nothing away right
1: a, a therapist would never
0: yeah. give and so it, much
1: detail that you could piece together who that person is
0: exactly no identifiers like, uh, is the rule yeah. like
1: um, I, I'm seeing a president of the United States <laughs> on wednesdays
0: exactly it's like you know i'm seeing a blonde woman who's a talk show host who also used to be a comedian i mean you just can't give that much stuff away you know
1: why is emdr not more popular
0: i don't want to be against it but i don't like it i'm person like professionally don't think it's always the best I've had some clients with horrible, horrific experiences. So really, it's really tainted my view, and I'm aware that it is potentially a one-sided. I get a lot of questions about it online, and they want me to do more research on it, which is fair. And that's why I love my viewers because they always challenge me, um, and it's my own stubbornness that has held me um, where I am. But EMDR is still not something that has a lot of backing like credible backing from the APA and so people in the profession are really suspect because it is such a it also feels very bizarre if anybody doesn't know what it is it's um, a rapid eye movement where you follow their fingers I've done it oh okay yeah yes and so um, you know it helps deal with trauma and a lot of my viewers have said it's been really helpful and they want to know more about it and I had some I, d- I guess it was just by happenstance. I've had five different clients who've been like, re-traumatized through it, which when we're working through traumatic events can happen, even in therapy when we're, mm-hmm. I'm making you talk in detail about it. it can be really hard. Um, but that's why I don't think – I think it's mixed.
1: Might it depend on the uh, expertise of the person doing the EMDR and that mm-hmm. that might have been why those People had bad experience because one the one of the things that I've heard is you don't want to rush immediately into the heaviest trauma exactly. that that person has dealt with. So I wonder if in those cases maybe that that person just went from zero to sixty and it was too much emotionally for that that person to handle. Because uh, some of the sessions that I did, I would I would have to go home and sleep for mm-hmm. I I, w- I was only awake for two hours went to EMDR, and came home and had to sleep for four hours because it yeah. was so intense. And then another time I did it, uh, I probably slept as heavily as I've ever slept for four days. From And, and so much tension went out of my body. Mm-hmm. So it was profoundly helpful yeah. to me. But I've also done sessions where I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel like any stuff got processed.
0: Yeah, and I mean... And that's the thing. That's why I don't like discount it as a whole. I just haven't had a ton of clients have a good experience, but that doesn't mean I think a lot of it is about the person doing it. And the thing that I think we almost, as therapists as a whole, almost kind of kick ourselves with is the fact that there isn't a lot of training required to be an EMDR therapist. It's the same reason that I have trouble referring clients if I'm full. For an eating disorder therapist, because people say, oh, I'm an eating disorder therapist. But they haven't actually done anything. They're just like, I can treat that, too. Oh, I can treat that. And there's no requirement. But EMDR is, I think it's like a short course that you Mm. take. And I think, like everything, it should be a little bit more selective.
1: Okay. So fair to say it's a mixed bag.
0: Yes. But don't discount anything. Okay. If you're struggling with trauma, it's definitely...
1: We've had guests who have had profound healing through through EMDR, especially yeah. from, from trauma, childhood trauma.
0: And I have a lot of viewers, too. That's yeah. why I said that, you know, they challenge yes. me. It's good.
1: Okay. Um, does the work ever get too painful?
0: I read that one. I thought that was, in, I get that question a lot. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it, I was just talking with a, a girl the other day who's in school to become a therapist. And she's like, how do you do it? It sounds so intense. And it's intense, but it doesn't get exhausting because I have proper boundaries. And that's something that I don't think people emphasize enough. That helps not only you as a therapist be safe, but it also ensures that your client is safe. And it allows for the relationship to grow in the way that it's
1: supposed to. A great template for them to understand boundaries with other people.
0: Yes. And it's something that I cannot emphasize enough. I've done so many videos on this um, about boundaries, about building therapeutic relationships and the fact that I'm not available to you 24-7. You're, you know, go fly on your own and then report back. And if you're in danger, I'm here. I'm like a safety net below you. But the goal is for you to fly on your own and for you to glean and the information you need to from me, but mostly grow in a safe space. I'm creating a safe space for you to talk about all that icky, gritty, nasty stuff that you don't feel like you were able to talk about before. And so because there are all these boundaries, when I leave work, I leave work just like anybody else. If I you know, obviously, I do some homework sometimes like, oh, I need to find a book to help with that. Or I need to look into that because maybe that the EMDR maybe is an option for them. And I need to learn more about that and yeah. all those different things that can be beneficial to a client. But it doesn't get exhausting because if you follow the, the rules that ethically that are set up, you protect yourself, and you protect your clients.
1: Yeah, I got an email from somebody who was hanging out with their therapist outside of sessions and I was like that Ooh. person needs to be reported.
0: Yes, and you can. You have the right just like any I mean any profession in the medical field or any kind of therapy, psychiatrist, doesn't matter who you're seeing, you can report them. Yeah. If if they're out of line and if that is definitely
1: yeah, because this uh, this male therapist had uh, uh, initiated a romantic relationship. Oh. Which really abuse. I mean, that's... Uh-huh. That's illegal. Yeah.
0: If anybody tells me that... This is one of those random silly rules. If anybody tells me that they have had a sexual relationship with a past therapist, I'm required by law to hand them this handbook that says, professional therapy never includes sex. And it's like all about why it needs to be a safe... It's all about the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Why it needs to be a safe relationship.
1: And the other thing, uh, too, is understand that um, a lot of patients, when they do experience that professional intimacy with a therapist, oftentimes will want to sexualize it and have fantasies about um, being with their therapist. And that's okay. That's normal. Don't you know, I, I've had sessions with therapists before where I've told them, here's what's going on in my brain right now. This is not me trying to initiate something. This is just me letting you know that something has triggered me. And we talk about it and we talk it out. And that's okay to do. Mm-hmm. That That is um, normal and healthy. Yeah. But no therapist should ever go, well, they were coming on to me. That's never <laughs> an excuse. No.
0: No, it's like I I tell my clients and I was telling that girl that's in school. It's always in our it's it's my responsibility. I take full responsibility as a therapist Um, and having sexual fantasies or thoughts are very normal because we're not used to having the kind of relationship that you create in therapy. And sometimes people struggle feeling like someone's so emotionally close without being physically close. Yes. And so being able to draw that line and realize there is a line and that this is healthy and it can be okay and it doesn't have to be sexualized is something that can sometimes take us a little time to process.
1: And it can really open the door to a lot of stuff that um, is going on inside you and is related to stuff that happened in the past. Um, mm-hmm. I was in session with this therapist who I really trusted, and and she was just great. And she complimented me on something, and all of a sudden I got really, um, just like uh, sexually felt like I was crawling out of my skin, like I I like I wanted to act out sexually so badly, and I was talking. Through it with her going, uh, uh, in my brain something is uh, triggering me. Here's what I'm experiencing right now. Here's what I'm going through, and and we just very patiently, you know, went through it, and we realized that the trigger was something that my mom used to do. Mm-hmm. Would be she would compliment me, but there was all usually something.
0: Mm-hmm. Sexual relations. Sexual.
1: To it. She would then come up and touch me in a way that crossed the boundary, mm-hmm. or then, there, or there would be a uh, backhanded compliment after it. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a sexual gaslighting. Yeah. Was, and that was if I hadn't shared with my therapist, I'm crawling out of my skin right now. I'm having tons of sexual thoughts about you. We wouldn't have been able to work through that. Uh, so if you are with your, and this is just my. Personal opinion, if you're with your therapist and you're having those things, there is a way to express it to them. Yes. That is totally healthy and totally cool. Yeah. Just let them know here's what my brain exactly. is doing. Don't be like, Oh, I wanna I wanna hey. fuck you right now. I that might not be the best way to express it.
0: No. It's usually I always tell people when they ask online, like, how do I bring this up? I'm like, just like you're saying it to me. How are you typing out? What would you say to yourself? Oh, my God. I don't know why this is happening. That's what you say, because there's no filter that needs to occur. But obviously, you want to say it in a way like, I don't know why. Blank, blank, blank.
1: Right. Uh, So we. Boundaries on it it Mm -hmm. being too painful. How can you deal with the trauma of seeing an awful mental health professional? And how can you deal with people who say there's nothing to lose in seeking new help? Ooh. Well, Let's take it one by one. How hmm. do you deal with the trauma of seeing an awful mental? I think it depends on what the trauma was, right? Yeah.
0: I've had various occasions where I've found I, clients have come to me from a, I mean, to me, a horrific, I wish I could report people because I can't
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, scenarios. and Under no circumstances can you report somebody? No. It's with the patient. It's their confidentiality. Oh. They have to do it.
1: They have to do it.
0: And I, it, it's ethically... Gray, But to me, it's kind of frowned upon to, like, push them to because it has to be their decision.
1: What? I yeah, this is like trying to find a loophole here. <laughs> what if it was an underage patient that had a sexual relationship with an adult then therapist? Yes. Yes. Because, because actually, I, I used to work with somebody who, when she was 13, had her therapist had sex with her. You're kidding. No. And she didn't think there was a problem. Oh, with yeah,
0: because people can twist the relationship. That's just yeah. oh, makes me sick um, because you're, it's a it's abuse in the worst form to me. Yeah. What we're entrusted with. I'm like, ugh. but yes, I would report that then because that would be okay. child abuse and that overrides everything. Um, but how do, what was the question? How do we
1: uh, how do you deal with the trauma of seeing an awful mental health professional?
0: As bad as it sounds to just say it this way, it's get back in the saddle for every one bad one, there's probably 10 good ones and it it sucks that people run into the bad. But it's
1: just like any profession.
0: Exactly. And that's what I was, I, um, I've had many clients, like I said, struggle with this. And I've always said the same way that you pick a hairstylist or a dentist or a guy to paint your house. Like some people are shitty at what they do and that sucks. And it's terrible that they even find themselves in the therapy realm. Mm. But Maybe this time we ask a friend, we call a treatment center, we do a little bit more research slash vetting on our side, and know that it's going to be hard to go back, but give it time and let the, you know, let the new therapist prove to you that the relationship can be healthy, it can be okay, and let you heal from that past experience. And it takes time. It's a, it's a whole nother trauma.
1: Mm-hmm. Um... How do you deal with people who say there's nothing to lose in seeking new help? What what is there to deal with them? I think that's a great opinion. There's nothing to lose in seeking new help.
0: And I think that's kind of part of the, like, because they were traumatized. And if the people are saying that to them, Mm -hmm. everybody's going to have different opinions about everything. And it's shitty when you have a bad experience, but like I said, you got to get back on the horse. There is nothing to lose.
1: If they're trying to shove it down your throat and you don't want to go to therapy and they're not respecting your boundaries then say, please listen to me. Um, I I don't want to talk about this anymore. Please respect my decision to not seek therapy.
0: Yeah. This is where I'm at and I'm not there. Yeah. So, uh,
1: what kind of self care does she practice to stay in the right mindset for sessions with clients?
0: Mm, There's a lot of things I do. It just depends, honestly. Um, I do yoga quite a bit. Um, A lot of self-reflection. How? Um, I'm a journaler. And um, take time at night for myself to just slow down. I uh, go for walks. I get massages. Mm -hmm. I make sure I have my own therapy going. Mm -hmm. Um, I take time off. It sounds simple, but it's actually hard. But you have to build it in, and all of us need to do self-care. And it can be anything as simple as, like, I turn my phone off into airplane mode at night, and I don't respond. My patients know. Obviously, if there's an emergency, then they know what to do. But it's ways that you create boundaries to help Mm. so I don't burn out so I'm able to keep
1: doing it. How can you deal with the guilt and shame of suffering from intense depression and anxiety when you had a stable home?
0: i get a lot of questions like this too like we don't deserve to hurt right like you need to deserve it um mental illness doesn't discriminate it doesn't doesn't care if you're black white asian male female young old i wish it would discriminate but it doesn't and so i would remind remind yourself that one in four people in the world are affected by mental illness it happens To a lot of people. And sometimes it's genetically driven. And sometimes it's just chemically in our brain. It's wired differently. And we are more predisposed. And there's no real reason. We don't know why. Um, But you don't have to deserve it or earn it in some painful, terrible way. You can be depressed.
1: Yeah, we don't apply those kinds of uh, things to broken leg or cancer. We don't say, I don't... You know, you had
0: a stable upbringing. How'd you right. break your leg? <laughs> You're yeah, right.
1: Uh, what's the best way to end the therapist client relationship?
0: Um, slowly and processing it together. I think it's great.
1: You're to- uh, th- this is assuming that it's a you've come to the natural end of yes. where this person has worked through their
0: stuff. Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, if you've had the healthy relationship, I always give my clients an option. We can do like two sessions. We could do four and we kind of talk it out. And sometimes we negotiate. Well, I think you need more than one session. We've been working together for three years. Some people are funny about ending it and you need to make sure it's done well. If you aren't happy and it's bad, then don't go in. I would call them or email them whatever way that's easiest to communicate with them and let them know. I always tell people, don't give them more information than they need. They can ask you why, but you don't have to tell them. If it makes you uncomfortable, just say, it's not a good fit and I'm moving on. Thank you so much for your time. Goodbye. That is fine. That's not rude. As weird as it sounds to say it, it's business. It's not personal for Mm. the therapist. It's personal for you. And so you need to protect yourself and know that you don't have to tell them any more than I just don't want to come in. If it didn't work out.
1: It's it's like, uh, you know, having a second date with somebody. Exactly. There's no right or wrong. It's just chemistry.
0: Yeah, and sometimes you can't make that up. You can't, you know.
1: It's either there or it's it. not. It's either, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for me, the the ending of uh, relationships with a therapist, I would usually go to, because I'd be going once a week, then I would go every other mm-hmm. week, and then i go once a month, and then.
0: Yeah, you can titrate down. Yeah. Definitely, and that that can be really nice, too. And I always let clients know, I'm always here if you need a booster session, or I'm not retiring anytime soon Mm -hmm. you know um and even if they're technically full Mm -hmm. with clients they'll usually squeeze you in
1: why does everyone say it is necessary to forgive the pedophile who incested you and your siblings for years so you can heal bullshit
0: this person that's bullshit bullshit.
1: (laughs) i have a lot of very strong opinions about people that say you need to forgive
0: I don't think you do.
1: I don't either. Um,
0: the most important thing is that you forgive yourself and that you let go of the anger. Because that bullshit there at the end to me says you're still angry. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that's so nasty about anger is only hurts us. It doesn't hurt the person who mm-hmm. abused us. And so I know that it. we always say, like, forgive and forget. And let go of it. Like, it all happens at once. Mm-hmm. But you can... You cannot forgive them because they took a part of you and you can't get it back. But you can let go of your anger towards that person and let yourself live.
1: I I believe, and this has been my personal experience in dealing with stuff that happened with my mom. I had to work through this, the feelings I had about her and my shame to... To not feel anger towards her. Mm-hmm. I could not just say I'm not going to be angry at her because all of a sudden rage would come up out of nowhere mm-hmm. on, a, on a given day. But the processing of those feelings in therapy and in support groups is what just took it away i yeah. it wasn't anything that I did. I could not make a conscious decision to get rid of my anger. It was a byproduct of my relationship in my support groups and my therapy, and the same thing with forgiveness that yes. that I feel towards her i and I think anybody that's trying to say that you should just be able to flick a switch in your brain and not have anger and feel forgiving that person doesn't understand true healing. They yeah. don't understand that it's a process that you can't force. That it, it.
0: No, and everyone's process is different, and it's yes. it's not linear. Like we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you may go forward, feel like a moving, moving, and you're sliding back, mm-hmm. and then you're moving, moving, and then the anger comes out of nowhere. But know that you're worth the fight. It's for you, and yes. for your future, and that's why you're working on it.
1: Yes. And there may be people that are able to just flick that switch in their brain and say, I'm not, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm going to forgive that person. and I'm going to move on. I, God bless them. Oh, I, they're yeah. luckier than I am. They <laughs> saved a lot of money.
0: Yeah, seriously.
1: Um, how do you deal with anxiety related avoidance behavior?
0: I want, I think maybe they're talking about like kind of agoraphobia, like you just kind of don't want to see people, don't want to go yeah. out, stay inside. Um, therapy is key because you're going to have to slowly reintegrate yourself and learn some self-soothing tools i'll call mm-hmm. them it's kind of like ways to calm yourself down you do kind of like a progressive okay we're going to step outside the house and we're going to go to the mailbox and then we're going to come back in and we're going to do some deep breathing and calm ourselves down or
1: is that considered exposure therapy yes okay
0: yeah um and so you do a little bit of that with a therapist that will come to your home. If they specialize in this, then they come to your home, um, and you kind of set up different scales of how you're doing and things you want to work on. And maybe it's not as bad that you're you're not home you know bound right now, but maybe it's I can't go anywhere where there are a lot of people, so I find myself going to this, you know grocery store that's open 24 hours at midnight, so I don't run into anybody or whatever. Um, you know, they'll work with you and you can set up different goals. And it's it's a slow process, just like everything in our life, but it gets better as we, we have to challenge ourselves because that's the thing that sucks about mental illness, is if we let it reside in our brain for too long, we start to our world gets smaller and smaller.
1: Yeah. I really need help with death anxiety. I haven't been able to find much about it in terms of practical ways to treat and overcome it. It's like healthy anxiety. Uh, it's like health anxiety times a million. I would say join the club. Is there I, I think there are very few people on earth that when they think about death are like, yeah, I'm okay with it.
0: <laughs> Maybe some random Indian guru or yeah, something. <laughs>
1: I'm going to embrace the void. Yeah. The unknown, no. the ultimate unknown. <laughs>
0: Seriously. Um I think it, it you something like that to me sounds like a spawn of a bigger problem it's usually something to do like you said because everybody fears death but it's obsessive thinking it's kind of that um rumination
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um which i just talked about in a video the other day because i get a lot of questions about rumination and there's some tools and trip like tricks you can look up online about thought stopping and talking back to that voice which make make you feel like you're crazy but it's actually really helping you Um saying like we're not going to think about that right now I'm going to move on and you distract you do something mm-hmm. else um, those are some things that you can help to stop because it sounds like they are probably ruminating mm-hmm. on this
1: and exercise I think is great for anxiety
0: yep and distraction at the same yeah. time
1: uh is it still PTSD if you have intense startle responses, emotional flashbacks, and extreme anxiety slash pain slash fear slash shame if the traumatic events are quote very minor such as social embarrassments or making mistakes? Wow. That's that's an interesting question.
0: And the the answer the short of it is yes. Because trauma is different to everyone. And if you felt traumatized, then you were traumatized. I know that people may argue because the DSM technically, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see me, but I pretend that you can, um, says that in order for it to be PTSD, you have to fear for your life. But in practice, that's not true. And I have a lot of clients and viewers who have similar experiences, just like this person's talking about, and it's just as hard, and you have to treat it just the same. So, yes.
1: I have met very few people who, I don't th- actually, I don't think I've ever met anybody who whose life was made worse by giving weight to their feelings. But I have met thousands of people whose lives were unraveling because they refused to give weight to the pain that they were feeling. Agreed. And to call it valid. Yeah. What is the difference between a therapist and a psychologist or a counselor?
0: Okay, I'll start from the bottom and I'll work my way up. So a counselor is someone who goes to four years of...
1: Counselors are going to be really pissed that you started at the bottom.
0: (laughs) I'm just saying in like a linear, as we move up to more schooling. (laughs) Sorry, counselors. You're valid as well. But counselors go to four years of university. And then from my understanding... They just have to major in psychology in undergrad, and that's it. And you can become a counselor. Okay. Um, and a life coach and all that kind of stuff. People do mm-hmm. take that route. And there are some trainings you can take to, you know, be more specialized or learn more about a specific thing. But then after that is two years of graduate school, like I did, um, and I got my master's in psychology. And then I gathered 3,000 hours and became a therapist. Then there's a psychologist goes to four years of graduate school and has a doctorate in psychology. Ph.D. Exactly. And they gather 3,000 hours and take a licensing exam. And that's in the state of California, just Mm -hmm. to clarify. But yeah. So it's just more schooling, different systems, all effective people. It's all about the relationship with your person. So if you like your counselor, stay with your counselor. If you like your psychologist, stay with your psychologist.
1: And a psychiatrist is somebody who has a medical degree and can prescribe medication. Exactly. Therapists, psychologists, and counselors, as far as I know, cannot.
0: No, we cannot.
1: Uh, Diagnosed with Asperger's, but was told my 40-year-old ass is too set in my ways for any real treatment to make a difference can't imagine a world where I can communicate what's in my head, but since the diagnoses, I n- know recognize every degree to which I am failing to be human as their help.
0: Find another doctor that's bullshit. We're never too old I hate when people say that that just like really pokes my buttons because if you're willing to work on it and you've been struggling already, find someone else. There are a lot of books out there as well. Um, Depends on kind of how you best learn or how you can best interact. I find that working with someone is best because you're going to need to read facial expressions and practice that. And what does that mean? And how do we interact if someone does this? And a lot of it is things you're going to need to practice with a therapist or psychologist or someone who specializes in working with um, people on the spectrum.
1: Awesome. Anything uh, anything else you'd like to uh, share? That's the that's the end of the the questions the the from the questions. from the listeners.
0: No, just thanks for having me. It's great to be uh, back.
1: I love having you, Katie. Um, people can find your YouTube channel. Yes. Uh, Katie Morton K A T I M O R T O N. is there a website as well?
0: Yeah, katymorton.com. Everything's just Katie Morton. Keeps it easy. You can find me everywhere.
1: (laughs) Uh, She has a gazillion videos on a gazillion different topics. There's almost nothing that you haven't um, dealt with in your YouTube videos. Yeah, uh,
0: I don't think so. I feel like every time someone asks, I'm like, well, I'll talk about that again. There's probably something new that we can, you know dig up.
1: The, the, you know, that's one of the beauties of talking about uh, mental illness in the human brain is it's endless. There's, oh, n- yes. You will never run out of things to talk about.
0: Exactly. That's what makes it so interesting. You know? Thank you, Katie. Thank you.
1: Many, many thanks to uh, to Katie Morton. Uh, Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making a one-time PayPal donation, or my very favorite, becoming a monthly donor, which is greatly, greatly appreciated and really helps keep the show uh, going. Uh, And we could use some more uh, support. Um, It's super easy to set up, and once you put in your info um, you don't have to do anything um, it's really 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 easy um, you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month you can also support us financially by shopping through our Amazon search portal if you're gonna buy something at Amazon enter through our homepage, page and uh, that way when you buy something Amazon will give us a couple of nickels and it doesn't cost you anything and that really adds up and helps uh, helps us and you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That greatly helps bring more listeners in. All right, let's get to the surveys. This is the Shame and Secret Survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Shadow Farts. I'm a fan. I'm a fan right out of the box. Uh, he is uh, straight um, in his 20s, although... he under straight, he qualifies. I have a tendency to jerk off for people online, uh, sometimes dudes. I really just like the attention. Uh, he's in his 20s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um ever been the victim of sexual abuse uh some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts when i was about nine or ten my niece would ask to see my penis after a while i gave in and she would sort of examine not sure if it's normal exploration stuff it turns out one of her cousins was touching her uh, He has been emotionally abused. I was adopted into an all-white family. Being black, I was usually the blunt of some really lame black jokes. And in my mostly white school, I took a lot of abuse without being able to defend myself as I felt outnumbered. God, I can't imagine how isolating and painful that must have been. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I've thought about meeting up with women for random sex. I've emailed people but haven't gone through with it darkest secrets my online camming i'm afraid it's going to ruin my sex life sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i would like to have sex in public in front of hundreds of people i feel all right about sharing it it doesn't seem too odd what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to to my parents don't adopt black kids if you're going to constantly point out how black they are what, if anything, do you wish for more time with my girlfriend? She is a mother of four. I wish we could just start over in a fresh city so we could try and have the life I've always wanted for us. Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't want to. I like the idea of having skeletons in the attic, I guess. Well, buddy, I'm sending you some, some love. And uh, just know that if that um, is a sex addiction that you're dealing with, um, that there's help. There's help for that. There's all kinds of support groups. And there is no shame in in getting help for that. Uh, This is from the uh, I Was Hospitalized survey. And um, I guess it's called Psych Ward Experiences. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Cake. And uh, she writes: I was I was voluntarily hospitalized twice, then once I was put on a hold. I'm pretty upset about the hold. I felt like I was in a daycare at the first two. It was clean and fairly nice. The food was pretty good. I hadn't been eating, so three meals a day was fantastic. And we had art and groups. At the last one, I was held at it. At the last one, I was held at It felt like the kind of dirty, run-down institution you see in horror movies. We were allowed to breathe fresh air for an hour a day. That was the best part. Uh, We also had some good good intern therapists. Did it help? I was able to focus on medicine and myself, which I don't usually do. Also, I guess they did help because walking into that ER saved my life. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Little S.P., about her depression. She writes, severe chronic uh, depression, apathy. I often just put on a happy face. I'm a massage therapist, so I have to be functional while at work, but most of the time it's a lie. Um, And then a snapshot from her life. She writes, I was raped when I was 14. I told a police detective in my apartment complex and he advised me not to report it because my parents would find out. The real reason he didn't want me to report it was because he and his roommates had been having sex with me since I was 13. I never did report it. That is... Oh, my God. No wonder. No wonder you're battling depression. That is... Sometimes I'm struck speechless. This is a happy moment filled out by Bipolar Kitty, and she writes, i have been trying to manage my bipolar disorder on my own for several years after going off of my medication, like everyone seems to, and eventually lost a grip on things. I was so ashamed to have to go back on mood stabilizers and anti-exam anxiety medication i felt like a failure and dreaded telling my husband for fear of judgment when i told him he surprised me and said it doesn't matter to me what's quote wrong with you or what you have to take as long as it makes you feel better and allows us to work on our future i'm happy it was one of the best moments of my life knowing i had true support from someone i love so much it brought me it brought me to tears that's beautiful thank you for sharing that this is, uh, from the body shame survey filled out by a, uh, trans female, uh, who calls herself Olivia and, uh, she, uh, identifies as gay and then writes, would I be considered gay if I'm attracted to women? Um, because she's trans male to female. Yeah. I, I don't know why that wouldn't be considered gay, um, uh what do you like or dislike about your body i dislike the way testosterone shaped my body because i've never identified with being a man i always feel like i'm putting on a show when i am with my family or friends having to hide who i am as time goes by i feel like i'm never going to be the woman i want to be well you know it's never too late you're only in your 20s and it is never never too late to embrace who you really are i don't care if you're 70 years old and you're uh embracing being trans um more power to you that sounded uh, that sounded a little uh, patronizing didn't it i don't know, like i didn't, i was uncomfortable with that moment of mine well i haven't had a perfectionist angst moment in about five minutes this is, I started a love off on Twitter, and I'm going to read a couple of those. Um, Fright Pod writes, I love when I'm walking with my earphones in and I can just barely hear the wind whistling through the cord over the music. Cookie Pilferer writes, I love when I park the car right when the song playing ends. Oh, oh I love parking the car right when the song playing ends. There's about 900 ways you could read that sentence. Um, and then Debbie Wiseman, uh, writes, I love when my bunny repeatedly almost falls over in his sleep. And then she has a little, uh, gif that, uh, shows somebody experiencing the same thing with their bunny. I love multimedia. Is that an old term? Is, this, is there some newer thing than that now? Cause I, I don't know. I felt like I should have be saying that in a rocking chair. Ah, oh, the kids with their Multimedia. This is the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by um, a male who wishes he wasn't. Um, calls himself uh, Melanie, maybe, and uh, he is. See how old he is. Asexual, in his twenties, uh, raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Um, Darkest thoughts. Uh, Now that I'm typing this, I realize that I have plenty of dark thoughts, like tripping the children that run in the halls in my apartment building and or bashing their skulls on the pavement and or throwing them over the hill or like suddenly gaining telekinetic powers and causing cars on the road to blow up when I'm stuck in traffic. As dark as all that may be, what I've never told another person are the extreme homicidal fantasies I had several years ago when I was studying for my first degree. At that time, I was a criminal justice major. Huge fucking mistake. And I was attending a seminar, uh, and I was attending a seminar the university was hosting by a renowned criminal profiler with the FBI. Oh my God, I would fucking love to go take that. Uh, He started talking about the profiles of serial killers, the rituals behind their murders, and the crime scenes they left behind. And at some point in the mid morning, I suddenly started having fantasies about becoming a killer myself. I imagined myself relocating to the vast wilderness in the middle of Canada, essentially living as a hermit and luring runaways and homeless transients into my cabin, which would, of course, sit on a lake. There would be no sex involved because while it's only in the past couple of months that I fully realized I'm basically asexual, even at this time, several years ago, it wasn't something I was interested in. But in my fantasy, I would invite the victim to take a relaxing bath. By the way, (laughs) that would be the first sign (laughs) that would be the first sign to the victim that something was creepy was if you said, do you mind if I pour you a relaxing bath? (laughs) Uh, Continuing, I would invite the victim to take a relaxing bath. I would concoct some heavy intoxicant slash sedative to mix with minerals in the bathroom so that they would fall asleep in the bathtub. And once they did, I would enter the room, hold their head under the water, and drown them, much like in the schlocky, mediocre Cabin-by-the-Lake horror movie starring Judd Nelson. I would then deposit their bodies in the lake outside my cabin, keeping a, quote, garden of my victims to visit as I pleased." Uh, Darkest Secrets. Um, actually, I was, I'm not going to read that one. Um, not for any particular reason. Uh, just uh, for for uh, time's sake, I want to jump to some other portions of this one. Um, sexual Fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm basically altogether asexual and I can honestly say that I don't have sexual fantasies anymore. That said, I'm not entirely opposed to being in a relationship and physical intimacy that limits itself to snuggling and kissing does hold some attraction to me. But here's the thing. In addition to everything else I've learned about myself in recent years, questions about my gender identity have come roaring to the forefront and the idea of having any sort of future as a biological male has no attraction to me at all. To the extent that I have any sliver of hope at all for the future in my bleak, depressed, anxious state, it's for a future where I envision myself as a woman with another woman as a partner. Talk about fantasies, right? Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish the gender identity issues I'm dealing with would dot, dot, dot. You know what? I don't even know how to finish that sentence. I wish I was a woman, plainly and simply. I wish I had the self-confidence to even say gender dysphoria or transgender in reference to myself. I wish I had the self-confidence to trust that my own feelings and experiences are valid, regardless of whether or not they're similar to what others have gone through. I wish I could be totally comfortable with my own body. I wish I had a meaningful sense of hope for the future. I wish I could feel anything beyond the anxiety and depression. I wish I could be exactly who I want to be. Have you shared these things with others? Yes and no. I'm fairly open about my depression and anxiety on Twitter, where the friends I've made are sympathetic and understand what I'm going through, but trying to express those same feelings to another person seems pointless. Recently, I tried to open up about my anxiety to my parents, framing it uh, strictly as an issue of self-confidence, and they still seem utterly flabbergasted and shell-shocked opening up to any of my friends, even my closest friends, seems disproportionately like one of the most difficult things I could ever try to do. And talking to someone else about my gender identity issues? Fuck that. I hope and somewhat expect that my parents would support me even if they didn't understand. Understand. I can probably identify where on the spectrum and spectrum any of my friends, close and more distant, would fit when it comes to accepting me coming out as trans. And I anticipate the reactions would of course range from total acceptance to shutting me out of their life. But above all else, here's the thing. I can name exactly and only one friend that has specifically and openly stated in no uncertain terms that she supports trans people. I know that for every possible reason, I need to get into therapy and talk to someone on that professional level, but if trying to find a therapist is difficult, try finding one that specializes in gender identity issues. How do you feel after writing these things down? Marginally better, just for the fact of having gotten it out of my system and organized my thoughts as such. And marginally better as well, just because I know you're going to read this, Paul, and that's important because as of this moment that I'm typing this, you are the only person who I've told any of this to. Is there anything you would like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? What would I like to share with someone? A hug and a cry. I am so touched by your survey. I am so so touched by your survey and your honesty and your vulnerability and you would be robbing the world of experiencing your soul if you didn't start opening up to people. You know, aside from the the help you would get in therapy. Um you're so articulate and you're so um sensitive. It it um I really, I really hope um, you can live honestly as yourself without apology and fuck anybody that doesn't get on board. Because I can tell you, we're on board. And speaking of on board, how's that for a horrible segue? Uh, Back to the uh, love off on Twitter. Um, uh, The cat lady... Says, I love when bus drivers wave to each other. That's a great image. I love that one. Uh, I magical writes, I love it when I step outside of the office at lunch and feel the warmth of the sun on my face. That is a great one. Um, Wood Detective writes, I love the beep that plays right before the theme song on BBC News in the morning. Those are awesome. Uh, Sin Boldly writes, I love when I confess that I've eaten an entire box of ice cream Snickers bars and my partner doesn't judge me. Redneck Jedi writes, I love the smell of a freshly cut lawn. Fruitsy Collins writes, I love the moments when I can read a large chunk of a book without getting distracted. That's a great one. And then I love this one by Drew Lucy Six. I love the moment right before the movie starts in a theater. That is a great one. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself S. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. My mother constantly told me I was stupid and worthless for even the smallest mistakes. She also would offer unsolicited help with any problems I had in my life and then hold it over my head and guilt me into doing something she wanted. Nothing was unconditional with her. Darkest Thoughts I am a hebophile, or someone who is attracted to teenagers aged 13 to 19. I often find myself staring at girls I see in public, imagining doing unspeakable things to them. I actively avoid any social situations where I have to interact with any girl of that age. Darkest secrets. I spend far too much time on erotic, erotic role-playing websites. I usually find chat rooms that deal with age play and incest. And then in parentheses, uh, he writes, "I'd never commit incest in real life, but the idea intrigues me." I spend upwards of eight to twelve hours sometimes chatting and masturbating. This dominates my free time, which I could be using to create things and write. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often fantasize of being with a teenage girl or a young but legal woman who acts like a teenager. The fantasy is not about dominating the girl, but being the conduit that the girl uses to explore her sexuality. I think that's a really common fantasy. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could better focus my energy and manage my time better to create things. I love to write and make podcasts, but my depression, anxiety, and horrible sexual habits prevent me from doing this. Have you shared these things with other others? My affinity for younger women has turned into somewhat of a joke between a couple of my friends. They don't know just how deep my desire goes, though. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a small weight is lifted from my shoulders, but my conscience is still heavy with guilt. Um, comments to make the podcast better. More guests who are addicted to online erotic chatting. I would totally be open to a guest um, who is addicted to, to uh to that this is a happy moment filled out by adam and uh, and, and regarding a uh, s your your uh survey uh without getting help i i just don't see something that compulsive uh, turning itself around on its own i really i really think you should uh, reach out and try to get some help for that and um stop feeling shame uh, this is, that's an easy, says the guy who's filled with more shame <laughs> than the word shame in the dictionary. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Adam. And he writes, I was in the darkest of my depression as I was ending my third week of my first ever antidepressant. And when they say it gets worse before it gets better, they were not lying. After several months of white knuckle living, my suicidal thoughts were getting Of white-knuckle living, my suicidal thoughts were getting the best of me. I always turned to my parents in times of despair, so I gave my mom a call, who lives about three hours away. I told her how low I was, and she didn't spend a second to think about coming to my need. When she arrived, she had a surprise for me. Two lower bowl tickets to a Red Wings game. Feeling the love from my mom and the amazing energy of the Joe Louis Arena gave feeling to my completely numb soul. For the 60 minutes of the game, I was free from my brain that was constantly trying to kill me. For that 60 minutes, I was just another crazy Red Wings fan, all thanks to my wonderful mother. Just when hope seems unreachable, as your hand slips from the cliff of life, all it takes is one little thing to keep your grasp strong. As I face future battles, I will always remember this. Only way that could have been better is if it was a Blackhawks game. But I will accept I will accept a Red Wings happy moment. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lieutenant Anxiety. I'm a fan. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Between the ages of 6 and 12, a boy that was a few years older than me would act out sexually with me. Mostly he would touch and perform oral sex on me. Once he tried to anally penetrate me, but it was quite painful and I was injured. Not really much I could do about it because he would become violent if I resisted. Yeah, that's that's sexual abuse. Uh, even if he was your age, somebody getting violent with, with you resisting. Um he has been physically abused and emotionally abused. My mother had a string of boyfriends, a couple of which uh would be pretty violent with me. One liked to wake me up at night wearing masks, Freddy Krueger, Jason, etc., sometimes while holding a knife. That is so fucked up. That is so fucked up. Uh he writes developed very severe anxiety disorder. Well, no wonder. Uh, Ended up hospitalized a few times as a child and adult. Mother told me that they were just trying to, quote, make a man out of me. Sweet mother of God. She told me I was mentally ill, and that was why I found their behavior objectionable. Spent years getting over that mindfuck. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? The boy is now a very good friend. We discussed everything. He was abused by his older brother and was acting out with me. He is very apologetic now and has turned his life around. He has been very inspirational to me. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I am worried that if exposed to great stress that I'll just fall apart. Darkest secrets. I spent a large part of my young adult life very confused about my sexuality. I was outwardly straight but would pay to fuck some men. But over time, as the illicitness of the sex wore off, found that I couldn't do it and I was really only attracted to women. Must be some artifact of the sexual abuse. Haven't done that a few years. No real urge to. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Very strong desire to parse it participate in a gangbang of my wife. However, I think she would not be able to do that, and the last thing I would want to do is pressure her into doing something that she would regret or worse. What do you wish for? Stability and family. Have you shared these things with others? I've been through extensive therapy for suicide ideology due to my childhood, spent lots of time in a mental treatment facility, shared everything, found that honesty was the only thing that helped, released the shame. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? It's a good reminder to write these things down. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Look into treatments that specifically deal with shame. It was the most powerful thing for me. Also, if you find yourself getting angry or scared at what you are learning in therapy, you're on the right course. The things that helped me the most were the things I least wanted to do. Thank you for mentioning that. That is such a great thing to point out. Um, Yeah. Thank you for that survey. Uh and then this is the last of the Twitter love offs. Uh the cat lady says, "I love when my cat looks offended when I sneeze." I didn't know that was a uh, that was a thing or maybe that's just her cat. Excuse me while I take a drink. This is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by Claire. And she is in her 20s, straight, mostly straight. Uh, She writes, I have difficulty reconciling my slight attraction to women with my intense unwanted misogyny. She was raised in a stable and safe environment, although she qualifies. I have some issues related to some of my mother's opinions and behaviors and from growing up in a rural area with slightly introverted parents, not giving me the range and amount of social experience that would enable me to deal with with social situations better. My brother and I now have social anxiety. We had very loving, stable, supportive parents and a safe and friendly extended family, so it doesn't feel right saying it was dysfunctional. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I've had sex that I did not want to have, but I gave verbal, physical, and behavioral consent. So I have some of the guilt, shame, and trauma of abuse with the other without the other person having done anything wrong. Between the ages of 14 to 21, I acted as though I had an extremely high sex drive because guys desiring me was the only thing that made me feel worth anything. One of the only things I'm proud of about myself is getting out of that cycle. There was one person, a friend I was casually, for me at least, sexually involved with, who I kept telling to stop making sexual advances because I had a boyfriend and I couldn't handle the guilt, but he wouldn't stop. Whenever he would get affectionate with me, I would go along with it because I didn't want to hurt his feelings and I felt addicted to being wanted. And every time afterwards, I would say, we couldn't do it again. So he would complain about getting mixed messages. And then she put in parentheses, Fair enough, really. Um, she's never been physically abused. She's been emotionally abused. My parents were extremely loving, but not very emotionally literate or open about their own emotions. So while they were very supportive of me with my mental health issues and did the best they could, I still felt cut off and had no template for how to express or deal with emotions. Darkest thoughts. Um my dad died in an accident a few years ago we had a wonderful relationship and he was one of the best people i've ever met i miss him every day but there's a part of me that is so glad that he isn't here because of my crippling fear of having to watch him grow old and grow ever more miserable until the light goes out from behind his eyes i feel so much guilt for feeling that relief when he died i needed to tell my old friends and current housemates what had happened and the pleasure I got from breaking the news to them over the phone makes me writhe with shame I don't know whether I enjoy the drama of it because of the rest of my life is so uneventful or if I enjoy the attention and sympathy when I am being kind to myself I I think that I enjoy the emotional connection and the shared grief and them reaching out to comfort me because I feel so isolated the rest of the time I remember my auntie offering to, or would you say auntie, offering to call people for me and I replied with a, oh, that's okay, I don't mind, and I'll never forget the look of barely controlled horror that she gave me because I must have sounded too casual about it. I felt like a monster. I still do. Sometimes I wish that my whole family would somehow die in accidents and I could stop feeling guilty about not wanting to talk to them or feel responsibility towards them. I have good relationships with everyone in my family, just for the record. Sometimes I wish that everyone who cares even the slightest bit about me would die in accidents so that I could finally kill myself without hurting anyone. Uh, I hate women. I know I shouldn't. Oh God, I know how bad it is, but the feeling is there. I think I hate them because I despise myself. I hate attractive or thin women for being better than me, and I want them to suffer like I suffer. And I hate unattractive or fat women for not hating themselves as much as they should, as much as I do, for daring to be seen in public looking so disgusting. I daydream about killing, mutilating, and torturing torturing attractive women, and I daydream about killing any ugly or fat women that I see, though I can't stand the thought of touching them, so it is usually a gunshot to the back of the head. Darkest Secrets. Over the course of my two-and-a-half-year relationship between the ages of uh, 18 and 20, with my uh, loving, supportive, supportive and dedicated ex-boyfriend, I cheated on him with six of my friends. Guys being attractive, attracted to me or wanting me was the only thing that ever made me feel like I was worth anything. I didn't have a very high sex drive, but I acted almost nymphomaniacally with the, those people. Uh, it did feel addictive, but I don't think for a moment that there is any excuse for my actions. In my first year of university, I fell madly in love with a friend that I made, and to my amazement, we ended up sleeping together. It was his first time. He was nervous and didn't know what he was doing, and even though I had condoms in my house, I didn't get them because I was too scared to ask him to do anything in case I broke the spell and he realized he didn't want me after all. I took a morning after pill the next day, but I got pregnant. I never told him, my friends, or the boyfriend that I had cheated on. My parents thought the pregnancy was from sex with my boyfriend. I got an abortion. I fell out with the friend who I'd slept with because I had what was effectively a psychotic break from the stress of the pregnancy slash abortion, Uh, how strongly I felt about him, and the fear of losing him. From his perspective, I turned into a psycho bitch as soon as he slept with me, and I am so ashamed of perpetuating that stereotype. Outside of my parents, brother, a close family friend, and my current partner, I have never told anyone about the abortion, and even though I have no moral qualms with abortion in the slightest, I feel so much weird social guilt because of the cultural stigma and the deafening silence surrounding it. Potential awfulsome moment. The receptionist at the women's clinic was cold and unfriendly. The website made it sound like they offered a pill for abortion that I was still in the time frame to be able to take it. Before I saw the doctor, they gave me pamphlets explaining the surgical procedure, but since I thought I would ask for the pill, I didn't read them. When I saw the doctor on top of her having to give me an internal ultrasound, which was awful, she told me that they actually didn't offer the pill there and I would have to get the surgical procedure. By the time I was back in the waiting room, they had taken away the pamphlets so I couldn't find out what they were going to do to me. So I was pregnant, disgusted by the thing in me, in an unfriendly environment about to undergo a mystery surgery involving my womb, and I was still stressed out of my mind because I had destroyed my relationship with the father, couldn't tell my boyfriend, and neither the doctor nor my mother could figure out why I couldn't stop crying. Fuck that noise. That's what she wrote, fuck that noise. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm the most turned on by being objectified, not harmed, uh, but not seen as being a person, just something they want. I want to be tied down completely and fucked by a series of men that just can't stop themselves. I love rough gangbang slash gang rape porn. I read slash watch a lot of hentai, like anime, manga, but porn, and I love anything involving rape. I especially love what starts out as rape, but the woman enjoys it so much she loses her mind to the pleasure and becomes animalistic, a beast that desires nothing more than to be fucked. I feel some shame for this, as I have several feminist friends who Who feel that this type of porn fuels sexism and should be banned but listening to the podcast has helped me to come to terms with what i already suspected that our sexual desires and fantasies do not define our morality i think it is the feeling of being physically desired so much that all morality or restraint goes out the window because i am not a physically attractive person my face is passable now that i am an adult but i had horrible teeth braces, and chronic acne from the age of 11. I was an ugly child and I've always been overweight. Now I am very overweight and I have always felt intense shame about my appearance. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell the guy who got me pregnant what happened and that I acted the way I did because I was unwell in love with him, and had no coping skills to deal with that healthily and under a huge amount of stress and I was not thinking straight that even though I haven't seen or heard from him since it happened over three years ago, I still think about him almost every day, and I'm so sorry for how I treated him. I say this knowing he hasn't given me another thought in all this time, though I would like to tell my mum. That her trying to protect me, keep me safe, and stop me from making bad choices has damaged me in ways that feel irreparable. That her, not entirely unfounded, lack of trust in my ability to do things right has led me to be terrified of doing anything ever, terrified of taking chances, terrified of the tiniest failures, terrified of disappointment, has fueled my anxiety to the point where it cripples me every day. I would like to tell her that when I tell her that I am struggling and she immediately tries to fix all my problems, it makes me feel completely invalidated, like everything I think or feel is wrong and stupid. I would like to tell her that I love how supportive she is and how much she cares, but that she just goes about it in ways that can sometimes make it a lot worse, and I would just like her to trust me for once, to just listen and tell me she loves me without me having to say it first. I would like to tell her how much it would mean to me. If when I told her about a new thing I want to go out on a limb and do, go to a convention in another city, get a pet, dye my hair, she would just say, that sounds great. When's the convention? What kind of pet were you thinking? Do you want to dye it one color or two? Instead of pausing, and her first very worried-sounding words being, oh, how are you going to get there? Where would you stay? You aren't going alone, are you? What if you're going to... What are you going to do if uh, if it gets sick who's going to look after it if you go away you weren't going to diet permanently were you will that reflect badly if you are looking for jobs I thought you didn't like drawing attention to yourself what's wrong with your natural color that enrages me that it enrages me that she thinks I haven't thought of all of those things just because I don't apologetically address every single thing that could go wrong as soon as I bring up an idea. I want to tell her that she has become the voice of my anxiety in my head, and I would give anything for her to just trust me because now I can't trust myself. What, if anything, do you wish for that my my mom could trust me, that I could live like healthy people, that I could have things that I enjoy in my life, that I can find a job that I can do despite my mental health issues and earn enough to do more than scrape by. Have you shared these things with others? My mom already seems to feel a mixture of guilt for not helping me more or preparing me better for life and frustration for me not doing more to help myself. Telling her would only hurt her and harm our relationship. How do you feel after writing these things down? I was fine until I started talking about what I want to tell me, Mom. I haven't stopped crying since then. It feels good to get the rest of it out, but talking about how she affects my anxiety tears me apart. Well, Claire, we are sending you some love. And um, man, parental relationships are, are so complicated and they're so i guess all familial relationships are just they get they become so entrenched and it's so hard to start carving new paths in those relationships and um i hope i hope you can work with a therapist and they can help you with this um I think your story is a textbook example of emotional neglect and, you know, from a mom who was well-meaning and, um, just sending you some love. This is a psych ward experience, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Sammy the cat. And she writes, My official diagnosis was a drug induced psychosis, but that title suggests that the drugs I took were the sole reason for my psychosis. However, my father's affair, the breakdown of my parents' marriage, and the emotionally and physically abusive relationships I had with my closest friends were the perfect storm that left me so void of comprehension or love, my brain had no choice but to shut down and reject reality itself. Describe your experience. I am very grateful for my time in hospital. It was both beautiful and traumatic. Although I'm not religious, I believed I was a prophet of God. I was picked up by the cops with a knife on private property, half naked, about to baptize myself in a stranger's pool. My first consultation, I sat in a tiny white room on a chair with five doctors in a semicircle around me. They asked me question after question. I sat in silence. I was a God, and they would not break me. My best friend in the ICU psych ward was a 42-year-old schizophrenic woman who was having electroshock therapy. She would rub her arms covered in bruises and say, they shock my brain and it really hurts, quickly followed by, I never said I was Anne Frank. My most treasured memory is when I was lying on the couch My meds were just starting to kick in. The man sitting next to me had never spoken to me. He didn't speak to anyone. He was too deep in his war flashbacks. usually stood in a corner and fired round after round from his imaginary machine gun. But he leaned over to me and whispered in my ear, Sleep now, my love. All we can do is melt. It is still the most beautiful thing anyone has ever said to me. And everything I went through in hospital from having my blood constantly drained to being stalked and sexually harassed by fellow patients was worth it just for that moment. That was like a novel. That was like a beautifully written. That was like a poem. You should be a writer because that is just... uh, I I love when you guys paint that. A picture just I'm I'm the good kind of speechless right now from that. This is an awful moment that I just I, I'm just gonna read it. I spent my twenties in a depressed shame spiral that started with my desperate need for a partner. If I met a guy I liked, oh, and it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Vitello. If I met a guy I liked, I would immediately have sex with him and then never hear from him again. That led to more depression and more rebound guys and more sex that never led to a relationship. Over the years, I found myself in many degrading situations with strangers, but one sticks out as the worst. I met this guy from Facebook at a bar for drinks one night. We really hit it off. I was having a great time and several martinis, so when the last call came and he invited me back to his place, I didn't hesitate. We crept through his dark apartment uh, because his roommate was sleeping and went back to his room where we immediately ripped each other's clothes off. Of course, we had no condoms, so right before he climaxed, I warned him I wasn't on the pill. He pulled out all of a sudden and ended up shooting his load on my neck, face, and hair. Despite being a huge slut, I have always had an aversion to bodily fluids, especially cum. And when I realized I was covered in it, I freaked out. I jumped up and ran to the bathroom, but as I was heading through the living room, I slipped in a pile of dog shit his roommate's dog had left on the hardwood floor. I came crashing down on the glass coffee table, not breaking it, but tipping it over along with everything that was on it. The roommate, his barking dog, and the guy I had just fucked turned on the lights and found me laying on the floor naked with cum all over my face and hair and dog shit smeared all over my legs and feet. If you did make that up, bravo. Bravo. But I like to believe that uh, that you guys don't write fiction. But that is, that is one that is one picture I don't know if I will ever get out of my, uh, out of my mind. Uh, thank you for sharing that. This is uh, a couple more um, Twitter love-offs by uh, adeacon2738. I love my dog's... P- so funny. What, what kiss meant? I love my dog's pure, uncomplicated affection towards me. Uh, I love when I'm able to get to work a few minutes early and can sit and just be for a few minutes in silence. I love that one, and I love this this one from Auction for Hope. I love it when I get a nice window seat. Must be a nice big window to see people and sip coffee. Oh, I love doing that. I love doing that. And then finally, this is a happy moment, um, and this was filled out by uh, Stormy Monday. And um, that's kind of a sublime one, but I really, um, I'm just going to read it. Enough hype. Uh, She writes, I was having kind of a shitty day, not horrendously so, but just a pile of work-related stressors had gotten me down. After work, I went to take the train home. It was crowded as usual for New York City rush hour, but I managed to work my way into a crowded train. I had a bag of groceries with me in my purse and lunch bag, which made it harder for me to get on, but I managed. Once in, I was sardined in pretty well, like I could not move at all from where I was standing. Behind me, a woman stood with her elbow poking me right in my spine. She was skinny too, so imagine a bony elbow right in your vertebrae as you stand, unable to move at all. I asked her politely and in a gentle tone, excuse me, can you move your elbow, please? She responded in a very exasperated tone, I can't. I can't move at all. I will dislocate my shoulder. I turned and realized she was also pretty pinned in and had luggage with her and was obviously having a harder time with her commute than I was. I replied, no problem, and decided to accept my fate of having a pokey elbow in my back for the next four stops. About five seconds later, she managed to reposition her body so that her elbow was no longer touching me at all. I looked at her and thanked her, and we shared a smile. She apologized for the elbow, and I thanked her again for moving. This very minor interaction with a stranger was very transformative for me. Living in New York City, I am often inconvenienced by strangers. Most of the time, I assume they are a jerk and carry on without saying anything. I'm often plagued by fear and self-doubt. I worry that if I say something, they will hurt me, or it won't go well, or it's my fault somehow anyway. In this particular interaction, I did not assume this woman intended to elbow me, which led me to find a way to politely ask her to move. I think that my positive energy gave her the space to calm down and find a way to move. When she had just seconds prior, felt like she would be physically injured if she'd moved. If I had responded out of my judgment and anger, thinking she's a jerk and meant to elbow me, I imagine this would not have resolved so quickly or amicably. I went home feeling a happiness and lightness that I had not felt all throughout my shitty day. I was able to feel really good about myself instead of being irate all night about a stranger elbowing me. I hope she made it well to or from wherever she was going. I love that. I love that. I love when you guys share moments that where your perspective changes. Because for me, in the... 12 years that I've been working really hard on myself and overcoming or at least managing my addictions and my depression and childhood shit it's my perspective on things that have saved me and I guess that's the message that I want to get to those of you that are feeling stuck out there is it's impossible to get the world to change, but it's not that hard for us to change our opinion of it and how we interact with it, and that can make the world look completely different, and that's within our control. It's not easy, and it takes so much time, and it requires a lot of effort and a lot of two steps forward, one, steps, one step back, but it's so worth it, and... um yeah so if you're out there and you're stuck you know what I'm gonna say get out of your comfort zone and ask for help I did and it saved my life and now I get to do this fucking great job that I love doing and connect so deeply with you guys um, and it means the world to me and uh, I have so much love in my life I have so much love in my life. It's I've, I feel so lucky. And um, it's all been because I've changed my perspective and connected to people, and that has saved my life. And um, just know that you're not alone out there. You never have been. And you never will be. It's just a lie that your mind tells you. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful I in some, weird bizarrely, in I some bizarrely bizarrely I in weird bizarrely way. beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way.
0: Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.